Welcome to the Wirecard Saga, a podcast with Tom Fox and Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director of Institutional Ethics and Integrity at Affiliated Monitors. Over this podcast series, we're going to take a deep dive into the Wirecard Saga to see where it may take us literally across the globe. Mikhail Ryder-Gordon and myself continue our exploration of all things Wirecard with our episode number 20, part two, The Blast Zone. We continue to take a look at entities, persons, and even governments who have been negatively impacted by the nuclear fallout from the Wirecard scandal. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome back to another episode of the Wirecard Saga, where I'm joined by my colleague, Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director at Affiliated Monitors. Mikhail, what do we have today? So, yeah, let's catch up on uh, what's been going on. And we'll start with just uh, a brief accounting of heads rolling and then more blowback uh, on Boston, of course, (laughs) and then on to some really juicy stuff that I alluded to back in Episode 19. And I think I'm going to call this episode Blast, though, because (laughs) the radius of impact and the people falling victim to the greater impact of Wirecard just keeps growing. Uh, So so let's start with the easy stuff, some of the folks who've recently fallen. Um, And remember, when you and I last spoke a few weeks back, uh, Bob and Felix Huffield had been forced to resign, right? Okay. So on a more personal level, uh, a former CEO, Marcus Braun's former private senior investment banker, Jana Hecker, uh, she who externally catered to the Braun family office, was recently forced out of her Unicredit job uh, as the bank's head of equity total. Now, what does Unicredit have to do with the Braun's? Well, not a lot in any pure sense. Uh, rather, when Hacker was with Deutsche Bank, Natch, where would Wirecard have been without the enablers of Deutsche Bank? When Hacker was with Deutsche, she had initially helped Braun secure these margin loans. And so when poor Bronny Baby had these big personal loans, about 110 million euro coming due, thanks in large part to volatility and Wirecard share price, right? That was putting the pinch on. So Hacker worked to find a way to refinance these loans. But her concierge loaning to the greater Braun family at a day rate of 5,000 euros and a promised performance bonus of some 870,000 euros uh, it didn't work out so well. According to the FT, Hacker built some 156 hours plus on this effort. Now, in all, a comp package closed to 10% of the total refine. Eh, Hacker clearly thought highly for own skills. Anyway, shame she didn't foresee not getting paid. She began work on the refine Fed 2020. You know, when the guano was really starting to fly from the fan. <laughs> but unfortunately didn't submit her invoice to the bronze until just days before wire cards collapse and ooh, never got paid. She did eventually identify a small sap of a bank, a tiny German letter to refi for bronze, but apparently Hacker forgot to mention her second job to Unicredit, and she had just started her gig with Unicredit simultaneous to the time she was playing private banker to the bronze. So poor greedy puss, no payment from the private client, and now no day job either, since Unicredit wasn't impressed she was moonlighting. But there have been others recently felled by the Wirecard blast zone. 
EY announced a big partner shakeup of its German entity. <laughs> yeah, I wonder why. Ousted was EY's German managing partner, and he's been given a new title, you know, moved to like the European role. Outsiders brought in to now lead the German firm, but they didn't stop there. Well, some of the partners from the German practice prepared to testify in the Stag Investigative Committee. EY is bringing in former German finance minister Theo Wagel to oversee an independent expert commission. Now, Wagel, you may remember, oversaw the Siemens post-scandal overhaul. <laughs> but before we start applying EY's uh, move here, let's just think a little bit about whether appointing a former finance minister from the German government is really the right move toward restoring confidence. Why? Listeners, remember this, and you've heard this for many episodes now, and you all well know, Germany's current government is still unraveling the rather tangled ball of lobbying yarn some of its former ministers got snagged on wire card with. In fact, did I mention Angela Merkel has been summoned to testify to the IC next month? That's right. The IC isn't fully satisfied regarding what went down as chancellery with wire card and lobbying efforts. <laughs> I've been covering the shenanigans of German current and foreign ministers since maybe back in episode 14, but now the IC wants to hear from the head mistress herself. Given what Schultz failed to do, the wire card connections back to all and various and sundry federal and state level ministries, is placing a former finance minister, the head of EY, Germany, really going to give us comfort? Uh, I know my answer. Anyway, who else has fallen? Well, sort of, and only kind of. President of France, Edgar Ernst, remember Ernst? He who was scrambling to justify his violation of FREP's own conflict of interest rules? He is departing, but folks, don't feel badly for him. Why not? Because he's being allowed to stay at FREP until the end of 2021. <laughs> That's right. On his own volition, he will gently sashay off to enjoy those board roles he holds. You know, the ones over the very companies his agency FREP allegedly supervises. Germany. Still evidencing a certain lack of clarity with respect to accountability has let Ernst determine when he'd like to step aside. So, what did he have? Compromising photos of those at Boffin? What the heck? Frepp's contract with Boffin was already terminated because of Frepp's abject failure to supervise Wirecard. So why, oh why, would you keep Herr Ernst on for another nine months? Germany's Ministry of Justice had already, quote, suggested. Ernst had to go. Ugh. I mean, seriously, you got to hand it to the old white guys, right? They know how to work it. Had it been anybody else, there would have been a big, ugly public escort out the door, having already happened. No, Ernst is staying for now. Who else impacted in the blast zone? Well, and this is going to be the bulk of our, our, our first, I should warn you folks, it's a part one and part two this episode. Yeah, because it's, you know, episode 20, so we'll, we'll do something special. At the last zone, there's fallout big time Austria. And we'll get to that in just a moment, because really, the center of the wire card scandal is swiftly shifting from Germany to Austria. If you thought Germany's wire card side of it was bad, 
you ain't heard nothing yet. Seriously, it takes a Julian effort to eclipse the political, economic, and social impact of WireGuard on Germany. So just be patient because you will be rewarded shortly. Okay. So let's hear about what the IC has learned in the last couple of weeks, right, since we've been away. Let's start outside of the IC's chamber and talk a little bit about, well, Deutsche Bank. That's right. More Deutsche Bank ugliness has seeped out from under that rock. Now, the FT broke this news last month. And remember back in episode 17, I talked about Deutsche Bank's uh, supervisory board member, Alexander Schutz, right? He's the chair of the supervisory board and his personal exchanges with Marcus Braun. Now, Schutz, you may also have been shorting some Wirecard stock. I talked about that a while back. Okay, so remember that. Well, now it's come out that another Deutsche Bank executive board member is just, you know, lending a helping hand to Wirecard months prior to its collapse. What form did that assistance take? Business development in Asia. Oh, yeah, seriously, you are hearing this correctly. A senior executive board member of Deutsche Bank was helping drum up business in Asia for Wirecard, you know, the center of all that fraud Wirecard was perpetrating? Yeah, you heard that correctly. Okay. Bank executive, Deutsche Bank executive board member, Werner Steinmüller, who happened to have been the head of Deutsche's Asia operations until his impeccably timed retirement in July 2020. Is anybody picking up on the congruity of Wirecard demise predicated on Asia-based fraud with Steinmüller's retirement party? All right. Anyway, so Steinmüller, according to the NFT, brokered for Wirecard executives meetings and introductions with potential Asia-based clients. And folks, these were not small clients. Yipay, a Chinese payments company, Hong Kong-based Bank of the East, and the Silk Road Fund. Folks, you know the SRF because it's one of China's big investment funds. And all the senior executives hail from the People's Bank of China, a.k.a. the China Chinese Central Bank. Yeah. Now, kids, keep these introductions in mind, because when we get to the part on Austria stealing Germany's limelight, you'll see why this is a big effing deal. Okay. But what gets even more unseemly about this helpfulness by (laughs) by the Deutsche Bank that Hensler, that that holds uh, major Wirecard corporate loans, is that Steinmuller's Wirecard point of contact Alphonse Hensler, getting ahead of myself there, Wirecard's former deputy chairman and a member of Wirecard's supervisory board. So we now have Deutsche Bank's board member and Wirecard supervisory board member collaborating. Uh huh. So, okay. So, Steinmuller is talking to Hensler. And you know, the so called Independent board tasked with ensuring wire cards operations were on the up and up. That, that's what Hensler was supposedly doing. Apparently, Steinmuller spared no expense giving Hensler the star client treatment whenever he visited Hong Kong. Of course he did. Deutsche, perpetually on the back foot, is saying this effort by its executive board member was no more service than they give to any other client. <laughs> yeah, sure. You really want us to believe that? Okay. 
Yeah, there's more to come out on that. Uh, <laughs> turning back to the IC, I'm going to observe that the IC in the past few weeks to months has seemingly grown increasingly concerned with hearing from so many low-level officials speaking of having issued completely justified warnings in relation to Wirecard, but then proceeding to do well. Absolutely nothing about it. So from an MP, Consul uh, Gazelba, who's on the IC, complained about this short-sightedness and narrow-minded approach of the various supervisory authorities, saying everyone only does what they are responsible for on paper. Uh, keen observation. Each authority, each department was limited to the area for which it was responsible, and as soon as they had ticked off their boxes, well, basically, they've settled that, and there's no real will to do anything else. As she went on to say, proactivity would not have been bad at this point. Or to put it another way, having regulators only in kind of defeats the purpose. Now, in these weekly hearings, and, you know, I have discussed them at length. As I mentioned last episode, the IC is also coming around to understanding what a colossal money laundering exercise that Wirecard was. In its two meetings last week, the IC took a closer look at the role of Wirecard Bank. Now, remember, the bank's subsidiary was a subsidiary of Wirecard AG. The Wirecard subsidiary, as a licensed bank, had two special features. Unlike the corporate parent, it was covered by the Financial Supervisory Authority. But as a bank, it also had the ability to lend and thus kept, mm, let's say, questionable business relationships of Wirecard's greater group alive, if you will. In fact, maybe even falsely so. <laughs> maybe they were the, uh, well, I don't know. I think they were the paddles uh, resuscitating a few of these fairly moribund entities. So unlike Wirecard, the parent, it had some latitude, the bank did. So the committee chairman, the IC, Kay Gottschalk, we all know and love, therefore called it the, well, heart and lung machine of Wirecard AG. Uh, I think it more of a defibrillator, but okay. Having heard from the box-ticking regulators and their worries about Wirecard's laundering product, the IC was interested to learn more about just how large sums of money could be transferred from the regulated part of Wirecard, the affiliated bank, to support these criminal activities over at the corporate parent. Without the supervisors noticing, you know, we know why the supervisors weren't paying attention. They were looking at their checkboxes. The committee had invited two top managers of Wirecard Bank, as well as their supervisors at the Bundesbank and the Federal Financial Supervisory Authority, Boffin, to help explain this, a summation by one of the IC's MPs, Daniel Baez, after the testimony was heard, and this is his quote, ex-chief executives Marcus Braun and Jan Marsalek used Wirecard Bank to inflate the group's balance sheet and channel money into the fraudulent Asia business, hmm, to put it mildly. Now, a former board member of Wirecard Bank, Rainer Vexler, contributed to the IC hearings. He testified. In this, in this particular uh, area of scrutiny. Now, Raxler told the IC that internally, the activities at the bank on behalf of the parent company were called 
strategic loans or strategic credit. Now, they were ostensibly used to build good relationships with partner companies and influential individuals, through which business opportunities would then later up, open up for the partner, or the parent. Now, Ratzler called them economically unsightly loans. The key individuals love economically unsightly. In reality, according to what the IC hearings revealed, the flow of money enabled senior management to embezzle the company money, right? And that both tainted and fueled the fraudulent financial carousel that generated all those bogus profits. So Ratzler spoke of being heavily intimidated by Braun, saying he'd go to Braun's office to question him about one of these loans. Um, like, for instance, he used an example of Wirecard Bank giving Wirecard partner Al-Alam in Dubai a loan that really couldn't be supported, and that Braun, screaming at him that he was the owner of Wirecard, he, Braun, not Wexler. And Wexler felt compelled to dance for Braun. Those are his words. So despite Wexler rejecting a number of these loans, mysteriously they got funded anyway. But the truly interesting tidbit that came from Wexler's testimony were his discussions of loans and deals for PATS. That's politically exposed persons, for those of you not up on your due diligence acronyms. Sadly, Mr. Wexler's memory turned rather hazy when asked to specifically identify which PATS. He did recall that former Leipzig Holstein, and that's a German state, folks, Prime Minister Peter Harry Parsonson was one of the bank's clients, but then Wexler suddenly couldn't remember the specific services they provided to Harry Carstensen. Conveniently, Carstensen had pushed for softening the ban on gambling in Germany. Hmm. Again, just wait until we get over to Austria, because this all, all makes sense. Hold this little factoid in your pocket, because really, it's highly relevant in a moment. Okay. So Wexford did admit Wirecard systematically established ties with politically relevant personalities. Hmm, now, how would that possibly help Jan Marsalek? I wonder. Anyway, Wexford's colleague, Mario Venka, head of the internal audit at Wirecard Bank, also testified, if you can call it that. He was with his counsel, and counsel spent more time objecting than Venka did actually testifying. In fact, Vinka remained so ridiculously vague and generally unhelpful regarding the details of Wirecard Bank's cooperation with regulators, he really shouldn't have bothered to show up at all. Just remember how Vinka points are only given to those who cooperate. Now, Vaxler's discussion of Wirecard Bank's services to PAPS and its dirty loan business and Steinmuller's introductions in Asia all lead up to another witness that was called. This one from outside. The IC called hedge funder Fami Kadir. Oh, I love this woman. I've mentioned Kadir's attempts over a couple of years to get Boston's attention rewire card and Kadir's fund, because Kadir's fund was one of the big shorters of Wirecard stock. But that's why her testimony shed light on more of the senior goings on at Wirecard. Now, recall, listeners, way back in the early episodes when I talked about having short sellers being tailed around London by wirecard routine PIs and the hacking attacks and the social media trolling of short sellers at Wirecard's engagement. If you've forgotten, go back to episodes 4, 7, 10, 11. I'm probably, there are probably more. Right, those come to mind. Well, Kadir told the IC she was physically attacked in New York City. The, it was so severe, the FBI got involved because the same day a masked man 
attack Kadir on the streets of New York, Socket Capital, that's her fund, their servers were hacked. Her offices were the only ones targeted, and Kadir testified she was certain the attack came from Wirecard. Now, Kadir was at the time of all of this, the hack and the attack, the most vocal critic of Wirecard. She'd even gone to Wirecard's offices in New York City, saying she walked into the building that, in her estimation, was far too big, where there were only a handful of employees. So this is her talking about her visit to Wirecard's New York City offices. I said I was an investor, and I wanted to look at the business. Luckily, the seller I met had no instructions from Germany as yet, so he couldn't tell me fairy tales. I asked him how Wirecard makes such high sales with individual prepaid cards. This is completely unusual. The man had no idea. He couldn't explain anything conclusively to me. I knew then this is a money laundering operation. Sometimes money laundering is considered a crime without victims. I can't agree with that, she says. Any crime is pointless if you take the profit from the crime. Now, Kadir had figured out that Marsalik was allowing Wirecard to launder for, as she put it, some of the most dangerous men in the world. Now, she doesn't know the half of it. Although the IC rightly made the analogy of those running Wirecard with that of the former heads of FBME, remember, Federal Bank of the Middle East? We had a whole episode about them. But observed the Wirecard was, well, laundering operations perfected. About time. How long have I been harping on this? Oh, well, at least the IC finally came to the right conclusion. And money laundering is the perfect segue. Let's refresh for a moment. Recall back in episode 17, the arrests of two Austrian former current government officials, Martin Weiss and EO, and we're not using EO's full name because of Austrian law. Okay. Bungs had assisted Marsalek in his escape from authorities, right? Weiss was former DVT. That's Australia, Austria, whew, Austria's National Police and Intelligence Agency. And EO was current DVT, in, assigned to a particularly sensitive unit. And Wirecard was paying them for classified intelligence. And recall that subsequently, back, remember, episode 1819, where Austrian Chancellor Kurtz and former Interior Minister Sobeka were linked to all of this by Austria's right-wing parties. Remember FPO, OVP? Okay. Well, Martin Weiss was talking up a storm back when we last, when I last talked about it. Now, talking up a storm doesn't do justice. He is literally vomiting forth information about what he did for Jan Marsal and Wirecard. After all, we now know that Weiss was considered a sort of de facto head of Wirecard security. No, Weiss he isn't done talking. Here's what else Weiss's loosened tongue has tattled. John Marsalek wasn't just buddies with Weiss and EO. No, no, no. Marsalek had contacts with former Austrian Ministry of the Interior employees, including former cabinet staff and BMI cabinet chiefs, all closely tied to him. And that's just the start of things. Weiss testified a little over a week ago, admitting that, quote, mountains of secret information and state secrets left the BDT and went to other intelligence agencies, especially Russia. Now, included in this mountain of data or criminal records, personal data from the personal identification register, data from weapons and passport registries, retrievals from the Shenzhen information system, 
queries from criminal police files, information from the identity registers. It goes on and on and on for at least five years. 2015 through 2020, state secrets were sold. That's right, sold. This wasn't ideologic in any pure sense. The quote, foreign powers. That's right, they were sold to Russia. In particular, information migrated to Russia. Now, remember back in episode 11 when I talked about how Austria isn't the most trusted of allies in the EU and that the U.S. doesn't share a lot of information with them because they've They've been known to regularly leak intelligence to the Russians. Remember, they lost full access and the clubs burn. Well, the EO at the DDT, he was suspected of passing secrets to Russia for years. He'd already been sent home in disgrace before for another matter. But, of course, Austria and its wisdom just moved him into a highly sensitive unit at headquarters. Sure. Okay. Remember Wirecard services to PAPS? And remember that data moved back to Vice and EO, who shifted on to Russians, that Wirecard also gave information to Vice and EO, EO back to Wirecard. It was all just a happy sharing community. Confirmation, Austria, you got punked by the Russians. (laughs) So much for the Austrian-Russian Friendship Society. Actually, more on them in a minute. But why Vice didn't stop his reveal. He just kept vomiting forth new information. I mean, full into Blair. Vice revealed that Wirecard had retained a Vienna-based private detective agency called PRM GmbH and told the inquiry committee, PRM engaged in highly questionable methods on behalf of Wirecard. For instance, they hacked targets for Wirecard. Heads up, Sufka Capital and initiated surveillance activities both on Austrian soil and abroad. In fact, the documents given in support of the testimony suggest PRM used, quote, more or less subtle threats. PRM, also known as Professional Risk Management, was run by Christoph Gospara and Marcus Spur, both of whom previously had careers in the Austrian Minister of the Interior, as well as in the Federal Ministry of National Defense, and who boasted about the vast contacts they held in these ministries. Yay! As Vice was quick to point out over and over again, former and current employees from these ministries just always seemed to turn up in key roles in Jan Marsalek's network. And speaking of Marsalek, because treason, money laundering, funding illicit conflicts, helping organize crime. It it just isn't enough. Is it ever enough? Jan Marsalek and Wirecard are now also linked to a corrupt procurement scheme. Seriously. (laughs) We add procurement corruption to the mix. Three German news outlets, Orf, Profil, and Defandard, broke the story, well, now three days ago, having obtained emails between Austrian Federal Railways, known as OBD, and Wirecard. And they identified what appears to be a corruption scheme instigated by Marsala. OBD in 2015 issued a public tender for OBD passenger transport payment system, specifically the handling of electronic payment system for passengers, right? So you could just swipe your card. Okay. Marsalek, whilst not directly involved in negotiations at the tender at the time, 
inserted himself during the court interface in October 2015. In emails, he contradicted one of the project managers who had concerns that the price offered by Wirecard might be too high. Marshallic wrote to the employee and put the then, well, he copied Marcus Braun, saying, I am the only true source of information about the price, and the price is not too high as long as I don't come back to you with other feedback. Who laying it down, Mr. Marsalek? Another time, Marsalek wrote, I am strongly against further price reductions, especially not by 20%. There is no reason to go down with a price in my view. Now, Wirecard's offer may have been too expensive at first. The suspicion now is that Wirecard may have used insider knowledge in this call for tenders in order to win the contract. OBB, of course, denies this, and Christian Kern, the former OBB Director General and later SBO Federal Chancellor, said he was not involved in the award of the contract, of course not, distancing himself. However, Wirecard was awarded the contract on October 30th, worth approximately 24 million euros from OBB. Now, a losing bidder initially appealed to a federal administrative court for alleged unequal treatment. However, the tenderers subsequently withdrew the opposition and, unsurprisingly, later became a second-tier supplier to Wirecard for that same tender. Hmm. OBB's passenger transport subsidiary withdrew the first call for tenders, and Wirecard won it without, well, too much competition. Based on the email correspondence, one can assume that Marsalek, well, hmm, <laughs> how many times have we seen this before? Now, Marsalek did not disclose his source on the sensitive pricing information in the email. It is clear, however, that the initial launch of the contract raises some serious questions. How? Well, for example, in 2014, Marsalek and Jules then OBB's board member for passenger transport, established an original contract between an OBP-affiliated consultant who was a school friend of Lauber's and Marsalek. Aha. Marsalek subsequently communicated with the consultant repeatedly about the potential OBP contract. They even drafted a, quote, partner contract. Marsalek wanted to give the lobbyist 10% commission for mediating the tender. Aha. Uh-huh. Now, during a joint visit to Oktoberfest, uh, there was a Wirecard OBB workshop in Munich in autumn of 2014, you know, celebrating Oktoberfest. And the same set consultants just happened to be present. Now, when an OBB manager with a large hand, a stuffed panda bear <laughs> that they had won in Oktoberfest festivities, Marshalik had an assistant put the stuffed toy in a huge bamboo wooden box and send it back to Vienna with a car from Wirecard saying, must then go to OBB. We have to do some lobbying. The railway manager was said to be delighted with his special surprise, getting his little stuffed panda bear out. He a big stuffed panda bear. You should see the photos of this thing. Anyway, so now OBB is holding the line that the procurement process, like everyone else, had been carried out strictly in accordance with legal requirements, strict internal governance regulations, uh-huh. And Lauber, Lauber is saying, absolutely not. I, of course, I didn't share information with Marsalek or that consultant, my friend from school, that I introduced to Marsalek, and then they made a deal. No, of course not. 
<laughs> he can. He says he can rule out any process that was carried out uh, that wasn't that wasn't objective. Oh, you know, no, no. Now, a lawyer for OVP affiliated advisor also denied that his client had passed on information to Wirecard. No, no, no. There was no remuneration for any mediation services. However, go figure. A different contract was later concluded between Wirecard and that same said consultant's company. And they received 7,000 euros per month for so-called market analysis in relation to Russia. Huh. It's getting harder to explain away, isn't it? Yeah. So according to new reports now, the OBB is um, opening an investigation. Now, back after Wirecard won the contract, OBB turned out not to be satisfied with how Wirecard fulfilled the contract. In fact, Wirecard had ended up paying penalties for several hundred thousand euros by 2019 for their highly unsatisfactory performance. Nonetheless, Ministry of Transport, yeah, they're opening up an independent report by an auditor uh, through their supervisory board to re-examine all events. <laughs> You're going to be examining a lot more than that, but we're all over. Okay, folks, this is where we stop part one of this episode. And don't worry, there's part two, and you can listen to it right after this. So, my thanks to Tom Fox, the award-winning compliance podcast network, always, for hosting me. Because this is episode 20, there's a part two to celebrate this milestone. So we'll pick back up across the border in just a minute. I'm Mikhail Ryder-Gordon. Thanks for listening to Lies, Spies, and Corporate Crimes, the Wirecard Saga. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the Wirecard Saga. The Wirecard Saga is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again in the new year. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.